Hey everybody, welcome to Come Follow Me Daily Dose. I'm Lindsay Hansen, and today is January 2nd. Today we're going to continue in our study of the New Testament. This week is Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. Yesterday we talked a little bit about Matthew, his history, who he was, and his purpose as he wrote specifically to the Jews with the purpose of trying to show them how Jesus Christ fulfilled Jewish prophecy. We talked about the genealogy that he gives at the beginning of his book and how the purpose of that was to show them that he was a descendant of David. Now, it's interesting because Luke does the same thing. He's also going to give a genealogy. But what's fascinating is that the two genealogies differ from each other. And there are a couple of different reasons why this might be. Elder Talmadge, in his book, Jesus the Christ, explained it this way. He said, Two genealogical records purporting to give the lineage of Jesus are found in the New Testament, one in the first chapter of Matthew, the other in the third chapter of Luke. These records present several apparent discrepancies, but such have been satisfactorily reconciled by the research of specialists in Jewish genealogy. No detailed analysis of the matter will be attempted here, but it should be borne in mind that the consensus of judgment on the part of investigators is that Matthew's account is that of the royal lineage, establishing the order of sequence among the legal successors to the throne of David, while the account given by Luke is a personal pedigree, demonstrating descent from David without adherence to the line of legal secession to the throne. Luke's record is regarded by many, however, as the pedigree of Mary, while Matthew is accepted as that of Joseph. The important fact to be remembered is that the child would be born of a royal line. Now, that makes perfect sense, right? Matthew's giving more of the royal lineage, whereas Luke is giving more of the personal lineage. However, there's another explanation that I think is really, really cool as well, especially if we're trying to remember who Matthew is writing to. There's a book called The Jewish Annotated New Testament, and it's actually a really, really interesting book. It was given to me by my Jewish friend that I've talked about several times, and essentially it's the New Testament with Jewish annotation and explanations, which is really neat, especially if we're trying to figure out and reconcile Jewish culture with what we know about Christ and the things that he taught. And something that's taught there that is really, really neat is about what Matthew did. If you notice in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from carrying away of Babylon into Christ are 14 generations. Now that's interesting because Matthew gives this genealogy or this lineage in 14 generation increments, whereas Luke gives us much more than that. It appears that Matthew's genealogy is a little bit incomplete because he was trying to show us lineage in this block of 14 generations, three sets of 14. The question is, why is that important? Why did that matter to Matthew? And the answer is because of who Matthew was writing to and why Matthew was writing. Remember, he's writing to the Jews and he's doing it for the purpose of proving to them that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. Now, we learned last year the importance of Hebrew poetry and the importance of using words and how they used words and how they showed things. And so it's my belief that Matthew was really trying to do something similar. He was trying to, in a very poetic way, show that Jesus Christ was a descendant of David. And he's doing that with the number 14. So what's the significance? What's the 
royalty of the number 14. In Hebrew, the word 14 isn't just its own word like it is in the English language. You would represent the number 14 by saying 464. And in Hebrew, each of those consonants or each of those letters would have numerical equivalent. And so it starts by saying Dalet, which represents the number 4, Wu, which represents the number 6, and Dalet again, which represents the number 4. So you get 464, which equals 14. Well, those three letters, you put them together and you come up with the Hebrew name David. So it could be that, yes, absolutely, Matthew was trying to show the royal lineage in his account, whereas Luke was trying to show just the everyday familial lineage. Absolutely, I wholeheartedly agree with that. But knowing Matthew, knowing how Matthew writes, he was so scholarly, he was so smart, and knowing how smart he was with Jewish culture and Jewish scripture, I think it's really neat to think that he was trying to show those generations in 14 increments so that he was repeating over and over, David, 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 really trying to hammer home to the Jews that he was writing to, that this man, this savior of the world, Jesus Christ, was the son of David, just as he was prophesied to be. So let's continue on in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We see the beginning kind of of the nativity story. It says, Now the birth of Jesus was on the wise when his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now let's pause there really quick. I know we talked about this during the Christmas week, but I think it's so important to reemphasize what it means when it says that Mary was espoused to Joseph. In the Jewish culture, in Jewish tradition, a marriage was in two parts, kind of like it is in our day. We have a engagement and then a wedding. Here in Jewish tradition, Jewish culture, they had a betrothal ceremony and then the wedding. But here's where we are vastly different from the Jewish tradition. For us, we can get engaged and we can break off that engagement and all it costs is some hurt feelings, a few tears, a couple of pints of ice cream and a return of a ring, right? But for the Jews, for their culture to end a betrothal would have been akin to a divorce. It was a legal process and it was a big deal. And being unfaithful to someone that you're betrothed to was seen the same as adultery. And so here, before Mary and Joseph are married, she finds herself pregnant. Then in verse 9, it says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Now, there's something that is so interesting in this verse that tells us so much about Joseph and who he was. Here, where it describes Joseph as being a just man, what I love about this is that word just has a couple of different meanings. First of all, the Greek meaning means he's justified or he's innocent, but it also means that he follows the law, that he is an obedient and good man that way. And so when we put those two definitions together, it gives us such a beautiful understanding of Joseph. He was innocent in all of this. He had done nothing wrong and neither had Mary, but by looks of it from the outside looking in, from Jewish culture, he would have been the wronged party here. 
and he would have been justified in making a public example of Mary, of dragging this through the courts, of making it a very public known thing, what had happened. He would have been justified in doing that because he was perceived as the innocent party, the righteous party. And as being an obedient man and a follower of the law, he would have had every right to have done that. However, he sets a beautiful example for us. When we feel wronged, when we feel like we are the innocent party and we have been injured or wronged or harmed, it's so helpful to do like Joseph did and to take a step back, to breathe for a second, to ponder on it, to pray, to consider, and not just to react. Joseph could have just reacted here and things would have ended very differently. But in the next verse, it says, but while he thought on these things, He was taking time, he was pondering, he was thinking, and he was considering his course of action. And that allowed the spirit and an angel to come and to clarify and to direct him. In our lives, we will have experiences where we feel wronged, where we feel completely justified and innocent, and that we feel like we have been wronged. But rather than react, rather than to feel justified and to move forward in action, can we take a minute to step back? to consider our actions, to think about things, and to allow the Spirit of God to teach us and to testify to us of the correct course of action. That can be a really difficult thing to do, but it's my testimony that when we do that, we can show a beautiful Christ-like attribute of long-suffering, of kindness, of patience, and of meekness. Those are beautiful attributes that we learn from Joseph here in these verses. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to follow us on social media, subscribe, like, comment, or share. This has been Come Follow Me, Daily Dose, and I'm Lindsay Hansen.